Shout out to Farrier Box. Uh, we've had Shannon from Farrier Box get involved with us, and that has been great. We get to offer you guys a 25% off of your first like subscription to the box. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty cool deal because it is it's good stuff. That's that's the coolest yeah. part about it. Each time I get one, I'm like, yeah, you I get something like cool, like in this box. <laughs> you know, the cool thing is like you could be having like say you're shopping online or whatever, and you're like, oh, maybe I want to try that, maybe I want to try that, but you never really want to like push through and get it. Well, they're gonna send. You know, you never know. If you might get it, you might not, but you're gonna get that item and be like, oh goddamn, they got it for me. Now I get to try it, see if you yeah. like it. And most of the time, there's always not so gonna... many options of things. Of so like this month, there was a sandbox. Well, yeah. or and it was like a foot finishing box. Well, there's like a, there's quite a few of them on the market right now. But like yeah. this is the one that we all, that all the top competitors use. This is the good one. So you aren't yeah. screwing around trying to figure out or wasting money on what one thing for it. She gets advice from top top cans. So it's yep. like everything in it is sweet and is what people are actually using. Not gonna so get like some the, hokey pokey equipment. No, this one came with like it, it. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Forging Brains Podcast. I'm Riley Kirkpatrick with my co host Gavin Cooper. Today we got a pretty cool guest. We got Doug Russo. Doug is a farrier at Iowa University. And he's just all around cool guy. He's got a lot of stuff going on with the AFA. He's done some competing, and he's also lost a thumb, so he's pretty educated out there in the world. <laughs> Thank you, Doug, for joining us. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing great. Doing good. great. Just busy. Springtime. I'm finally like on the downhill of crazy horse people, so it's pretty nice. You you got past the spring rush? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. pretty much uh, like mellowing out now. It's not any like little add-ons here and there every single day so that's been sweet yeah so for the record the the, my thumb is the only part i'm missing so okay yeah i just (laughs) want to get that out there right now so you haven't lost anything else since we saw you last time then no no it's (laughs) i'm good i'm complete well how did you end up losing your thumb originally then i lost it roping and I, I'm not even a good roper, so <laughs> it was a, it was a surprise. But yeah, it was something. It was, I, it was a surprise. I did it wasn't even planned out. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, and I I'm not an A type personality, but I still like to plan major events like that. You know, so it was major it was, surgeries. It was spur of the moment. Yeah, yeah. I didn't catch it. I didn't get it on the horn, but I had. After I dallied and my hand was back, my dallies popped off the horn and there was a loop around my thumb. Oh, shit. It, it was like, it was fast. So wearing a bright orange roping glove makes your thumb really easy to find. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's laying it, it, on the ground. It, it popped clean off then. Yeah. Did it bleed a lot? It didn't bleed too bad. It started to bleed a little, a little more like it was almost like i think it cauterized it as it came off because it That's... it wasn't like a gusher and yeah. uh yeah it's fast you talk to other people that lost fingers roping and it's like you don't even know what happens till it's on the ground or 
and you're looking for right. a Cheeto on the ground. Right, you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Over there you're looking like, like, a lost, like a lost earplug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like a big earplug. That's a good that's a good analogy. <laughs> so yeah. like I think you've told me that you've I know I've heard the story before, but it's a pretty good one of like the rush to the hot like because you you thought you were gonna get to keep it, huh? Yeah, well, it was we were it was uh, it was at the Powder River Days in Sheridan, Wyoming, and we were right across the road and down just a little bit from the hospital. So I thought, well, so. So I mean I was in shock. So it it was a it was a weird feeling cuz it was like I was I was almost like out of body watch and the whole thing ha- you know and uh-huh. I was with all my good friends they took good care of me. Like you know I, I Sam picked up my thumb and he he carried it out and then I sat in the back and he handed my thumb to Toby and uh and then my buddy Wade ran to get a bag of ice. And Toby was really comforting. He kind of sat, he was knelt down next to me, rubbing my back, and he was telling me I was going to be okay. And the whole time he's he's holding my thumb right here in front of my face. Like, You're going to be okay, man. So, but uh, so then Wade pulled the pickup into the arena, and I got in the pickup, and and Toby's wife Amy was going to drive me to the hospital, and. She dumped the clutch on that ranch pickup and hit Wade pulling out of the arena. So No way. <laughs> he went rolling. Yeah, so I was worried Wade maybe maybe Wade needed to come with us, but he was okay. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he was in the arena. <laughs> a little bit of a soft landing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so they t- they flew me to Denver and they sewed it back on and it but it and they told me it was like a 50-50 chance of keeping it. Mm-hmm. And and so by the, like midday the next day, it wasn't getting any blood, so it was starting to get cold. So they took it off, and I I might be better off probably without it because I I know other guys that they've sewn them back on, and it's like a chunk of wood. You know they don't ever get the feeling back, and the mobility's not quite as good. So then you got this extra thing sticking out, you're whacking it on everything all the time. Yeah, so I've done I've done pretty good without it. So I, I mean I can't. It's hard hitchhiking because people don't <laughs> want to pick you up with when your back's to them. So uh, I can hitchhike in England, uh, and then I I was aspiring to be a movie critic, and that, that kind of hurt that venture well, you can't too. Can't do the so. thumbs up or thumbs down, huh? Yeah, it's no the only th- one. Just only one, one <laughs> thumb up for every movie. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna be one of those rotten tomato kind of guys. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> On the bright side, you can never catch it again in the dally. No. Yeah, and so it's really funny because it's like I said, I never even. I'm not a good roper, and you know, I go out west once a year, and my friends would would tolerate me playing cowboy with them pretty good, but uh um it like when they so after they cut after they amputated it the second time the surgeon was talking to me about taking my big toe off and putting it <laughs> and they can transfer it to your hand no way <clears throat> yeah and uh 
and they showed pictures he was showing me pictures and it looks like they make they trim it up to look like your other thumb so other than having a scar down the back of it you can't even tell what do you mean they trim, they trim it up <laughs> well it's like Wait, i mean like, my go, big, like, like narrow it yeah because i mean i got a oh, big no. big toe i mean that's it what i'm thinking is like you got shrek on one hand and you got <laughs> your regular thumb on yeah. the other side yeah well, i did yeah because like I knew a guy when I was a kid that he had his big thumb sewed on. It was just straight up the big toe. Like it was, it was no trimming, no trimming at all. It was <laughs> yeah. just on there. It was enough. You look like yeah. Igor. Yeah. So you, yeah, he was showing me those pictures, and then they have another process. <laughs> like, like you had a catalog. Yeah. <laughs> You're off. Like what do you, what do you think of this one? So in, <laughs> I think it was they started this in Japan, but in Japan, they take off your little toe. You're, you're like second to big toe. That mm. looks a lot funnier having a Because they have thumb. small hands. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it still looks, it it looks funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, so, and I, I mean, I didn't really care much what it looked like, but it's funny because, I mean, one of the biggest things that made me decide not to do it was the fact that I might cut my toe off then. You know, mm. like, so then what, then I'm out of toe and a thumb. I'm like sooner or later you're gonna run out of toes to transplant. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're not a good roper. So, so, I see what you're so many chances of this. <laughs> yeah. Could you? This is a side a side rant. Like those doctors aren't that good. Like the guy that would be trimming the toe up. It's not like he's that good with hand tools. I don't know. I, I never Dude, thought about that. I had a friend he just went through serious surgery like he broke his pelvis in two spots and his wife took a video of him getting he had two rods that were like a foot long and there were six inches in them and the guy that was handling the tools like he just looked like he'd never handled a pair of pliers before a day in his life and there he is hammering a steel rod into trying to leg. twist it out like yeah it was crazy yeah. It keeps missing and hitting your hip with the hammer. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. he was almost to the point, like, screw this, let me just twist it out. Like you. This lady I was just talking about, she had her knee replaced, and the bone that they cut to, like, put the knee in, you know, like the, the implant knee, mm. it was 17 degrees off, off zero, the cut. And so, he's like, she has to have the surgery again. So, like, on, a, on an yeah. angle? So, if you had, like, a bad saw guy <laughs> at the steel yard. Yeah, wow. yeah you, cry, like a cross-eyed surgeon was working they on should, her. They should hire guys like us to do the fine work. Like, all yeah. right, you open them up, get them clean, I'll come in and run the rasp. I'll trim the toe <laughs> up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you put it back on there. Yeah. Yeah, we just don't fit any of the sterilization process. It's Not tough. at all. Yeah. yeah so how true. hard was it to learn to run your hoof knife again? Nah, it wasn't. You know, the only thing I struggled with, with with the hoof knife was getting it out of my apron. So, oh. yeah. yeah. I, so I have, like, I added all these, I forged up some little hooks to put on the end of my handle. Uh -huh. And people always ask, is that for hot fit and is that for picking feet out? It's not, so I can get it out of my apron. So I can hook it with my, my index finger and pull, pull it, it out. out. Yeah. Yeah. So... Holding the rasp is kind of tough. Like if I'm one hand in the rasp with my right hand, because like if you guys pay attention to it, you got it between 
like lot like wide wide ways between your thumb and your hand, so I can't yep. grip it that way. So, but I got a lot better at doing things left-handed. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I eat. I go back and forth eating. Like I'll eat some with my left hand, some with my right hand. What about writing? Writing, I still write with my my right hand. I I just squeeze the pen between these Ooh. fingers, and I I didn't write well to begin with anyway. So it might it didn't really get any worse. My penmanship. So you're almost like the uh, the butler on Scary Movie when he uh, <laughs> coming in stirring <laughs> up the salad. My strong hand. It's my strong hand. <laughs> I never saw that. I was like, <laughs> Just the way you uh, explain the way that you're writing it, just put yeah. that picture in my yeah, mind. You just pinch it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. mean to be poking fun at you. What, <laughs> no, what, what in horseshoeing was probably the hardest thing to relearn? Not, I, I really, so I had to, I had to refigure out my hammer grip. And I was wondering that. Yeah. Cause I had a good, I mean, I had a good mentor, and I, you know, and even before I got into shoeing, I could swing a hammer. I did construction and framing and trim work and cabinet making. I had the hand-eye coordination, and I could swing a hammer hard. And but I had like with in forging, I had developed a nice loose grip, so it was like, you know, thumb and four in my forefinger, and the hammer would pendulum. And I'd throw it just a little bit and just squeeze it lightly right at the end. And then when I first got back to forging, after I cut my thumb off, I was gripping super tight with these three fingers, uh, trying to keep the stability in the hammerhead, keep it from rocking back and forth. Mm -hmm. And it was killing my forearm. Uh, Oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, so, but I got that. I got that figured out. I still, I probably will never have the stamina to forge like I did before, like competing all day. Start, it'll start. My hand will start to hurt. My form, it'll hurt a little bit. I, I can still do it, but uh, and then the only thing that still is kind of hard is drawing clips, because I got like coming into the corner of the anvil. When your hammer's on an angle, it wants to roll one side or the other, and I don't have a thumb across the shaft to stop that. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah, it's like even with all that stuff, you figure it out, you know, and I think that was six years ago that 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 happened, and and I don't even think about it anymore. Is is there something that you think you do better now afterwards because you learned how to use your left arm and hand so much better? Oh, I never thought of that. No, I... Like, a lot I, of us suck at rasping because we're too right-handed. You know, oh. like, we're, we're always pushing down on our handle and stuff. Like, that's why, like, I always have the same high left side at my heel because yeah. I'm not that great with my left hand. Yeah, I noticed you suck at that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, no, I... That's a... It's a really good question and to be honest with you i haven't paid attention what i have noticed like my one of my trimming nemesis is 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 rolling my heels and i roll my heel worse now on 
whichever heel I'm going to pull up with in my right hand. And I, cause mm-hmm. I got my hand like clear over the rasp trying to pinch it. And, yep. and I, and I just pushed, I pushed down on it, but it's, isn't it funny? Like, cause it's funny you say that it, it's a funny thing about shoers. It's like, we all have, it's like our MO, like the, my other MO is pulling toe clips off center, always in the same direction. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's like, and you know what your MO is and you just get really good at doing it still like 20 <laughs> years later i still do it and, and i and i get mad every time and I, the next yeah. horse i do it again i yeah. always refer yeah. to it as like shooting that old rifle that you know is, shoots a little high into the left but for some reason you still always just throw it up at the crosshairs and throw yeah. the first one down right <laughs> anyways you're like yeah. god damn i knew it was off yeah. like why did i do that yeah <laughs> The second one, you can get it there, but it's like you always make the same mistakes over and over. Yeah. It's a funny deal. Stop so we, we kind of we went pretty deep into there. Uh, where 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 did you grow up, Doug? Did I grew you grow up in, up in that area in Iowa? No. No, I grew up in Michigan. So uh, I can't really point to where I grew up <laughs> anymore. It's like, yeah. So that stuff, you know, everybody from Michigan can't tell you where they live without pointing to their hand. But <laughs> so, uh, and then, uh, so I grew up there really, you know, I had a ho- interest in horses at a young age, but never owned them. Um, then my, I worked as a wrangler at a summer camp for a few summers was in, but it's, it's really weird. You know, I don't know about you guys, but it seems like it's kind of a story with a lot of farriers that none of us really ever start out wanting to be a farrier. It's like, like if you'd asked me back then, or even when I was in my twenties, when I was working, I worked on some places out in Montana and that was the first couple of spots where I, where I nailed shoes up. I'd trimmed, trimmed a couple horses here or there in high school and then, uh, but then not well, did, like not with no training. And then some cowboys taught me how to nail shoes on in Montana and, and I hated it. It was, oh, I did really? not want, yeah. So I had to shoe horses for that place I you know, I had to shoe the horses I was riding and, and I, and I, I couldn't stand it. It was the worst part of that whole job was having to shoe those horses. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Did you have yeah, any formal education at that point or just at what they had taught you there at the ranch? No, it, yeah, it was like, it's almost like like sick people passing on diseases, right? It's, <laughs> you know, like, it just keeps getting worse <laughs> and worse and worse. Yeah, you know, so, you know, somebody thought they had it figured out and then they teach the next guy and then that guy teaches the next guy. You could kind of see how our trade stuff, like, you know, we're re- like we're all pretty lucky. Like we're in the heart of a Renaissance mm-hmm. in the, in the shoe, especially in the U S you know, in the shoeing industry, it's like, like it's, it's in a really exciting time. Cause it was like, we're rediscovering the trade. Yeah. That's why it's so, important for those that care, you know, to teach and actually like pass it on to keep doing that and pushing it on instead of, you know, people that are just kind of don't necessarily care so much about it but they just kind of pass it on but like half acidly you know yeah and then it just keeps diminishing as it goes it, what what parts do you think that we're rediscovering i think 
like well so, you know for sure the focus on anatomy uh i mean and, and so it might be unfair for me to just reference my own you know my own personal experiences but you know and i guess another thing too that that like i still like i didn't grow up with the internet it wasn't around yet, right? But yeah. so that's another major, probably a major influencer that I don't think about. That's that's helped perpetuate this renaissance. But you know, like thirty years ago, when I was tacking on the first set of shoes, I had no idea there was an American Farriers Association. I was living in my I was living six hours away from Montana State University, where. Scott Simpson was teaching at the time and I had no idea it was there. Yeah. You know, so it, and like, and you talk to the guys back then that were part of it going all the way back to those, those times. And a lot of them found out about it, uh, through like an ad in the Western horseman or something like that. You know, it was, oh, yeah. uh, it wasn't easy to, it wasn't easy to get the information. Right. So, and and it wasn't really till I found out that there was a whole other part of the trade I'd been missing that it became interesting to me. So watching a, a shoe forge for the first time blew my mind. Do you think we lost some of our horseshoeing when we lost, like, you know, we went through the revolution, right? Like all of a sudden now we got cars and everything going on. And so do you think that that's when we lost a lot of our information? Because like you read you read older books of guys shoeing you know high numbers of horses and everything they like they cared about forging they cared about coming up with therapeutic shoes anatomy keeping horses working and like at a, there is a time where we lost it you know where we lost connection with each other and everything like that do you think that's where it came from or well I think so I think historically if you look at where we started losing the the trade or the knowledge in the industry came shortly after World War Two. That's like mm. the the I I'm I, I'm kind of a nerd with some of that history, and so I I search it out and try to read about it. But you know, so you know, I I forget the number of horses that were in World War One was nine uh, nine million something horses. No way! Holy yeah, shit. yeah. And then so by the time you get to World <laughs> War Two, it's like. I think it was in the thousands, 50, I, I shouldn't throw the number out there, but, it, but I mean, it dropped way off after World War II, but even after World War II in the United States, like it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon in the cities for the junk collectors to have horse-drawn wagons. They were still delivering milk with horses, farms, or hmm. a lot of farms, even though they had a tractor on the farm, still had a team they were using. Uh, and so you had... They were still being used as draft animals for work, and then the very wealthy people owned them. But there was never any middle class in the United States that owned horses for pleasure until like the 70s, mm -hmm. 80s. And then that was when that renaissance occurred in our industry. You know, Walt Taylor and a lot of those guys that recognized what needed to be done. Is I that see. when, when was AFA started? It was 52 years, so is it... Uh, 71. 71. So, yeah. So we just did our 50 year. Yeah, I think it was 71. I should know it, but... Yeah, that was 52 years ago, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so about the same time. Yeah. 
yeah. they notice they notice a need to kind of gather up some people and get a standard going. Was that was that kind of the, the goal of AFA when it started? Right? Was yeah. I like you know Walt Taylor is a I I'm I'm fortunate to be able to call him a friend. I mean he he took an interest in me and and Walt if you guys haven't met him he's the kind of guy that you can you can walk up and introduce yourself to him and you see him a year or two later and he remembers your name. He makes, oh, cool. he makes you feel good that way. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and he asks you questions about yourself and he, he's got a genuine interest in people, but, uh, and he has a, you know, a very interesting and varied history And um, but his goal really with the American Farriers Association was, was professional, a professional standard and a professional recognition within the industry. And I, I think in some ways he might be disappointed that it, it hasn't, that it didn't happen faster or there was some pushback with some farriers on the way it happened. But, but I, I think he's really succeeded. I think mm-hmm. that, I think that it's even grown, you know, in a lot of ways far beyond maybe what, he originally imagined. I know licensing was was uh, was something he was a proponent of, and that's like when you bring up licensing in a farrier convention, it's like starting a food fight in yeah. a <laughs> grade school. Yeah, you get one yeah. side on one side. And... Yeah, you know, well, and we'll, I, I don't know. We'll get I, there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> so you were you were in Montana, and you were doing you were doing some cowboy and hating it. What made you all of a sudden want to start doing it? For a living, it uh, it wasn't until I was married, uh, and I mean, I guess that's another part of my my person, like maybe one of my more negative personality traits is I've always been like I've always been fickle, like like the wind blows and I'm I'm fi- I'm turning my head and going in a different direction. So it was like, you know, I was always in different trades. As soon as I as soon as I got halfway good at one, I was looking to learn the next one. And 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 so that was, it was kind of one of those transitionary periods where I was at a point where it would work to learn a new career. We were, I was just married. We had, uh, we had not, we didn't have a kid yet, but we were, had one on the way. And you guys were still, were you guys still in Montana, you and Sue? No. So we spent two years in Maine. Uh, that oh. was an, another one of my wild hairs. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, because you guys were like living off the grid, weren't you? Yeah, we had 140 acres off the, like in the mountains by the New Hampshire border. No kidding. Uh, yeah, so and that was a it was a pretty piece of property, and it it was wild. I mean, we were we were the only we had some neighbors that were about two miles away, and and then other than that, we were the only ones out there. That's and, cool. Yeah, yeah. It was and a, you guys, you guys had your first kid there. Yeah. What were you What were you doing there, like for work? So I was, I was building timber framed homes for a company out of Portland, and uh, oh, yeah, that was a skill I'd learned in Montana. Okay. Uh, like true mortise and tendon, the whole nut, you know, traditional yeah. timber framed homes. So like cutting yeah, was, the wood down there cutting the wood in Maine and then building the house right there on the property? Well, yeah, so that was really fun, like pretty funny irony. In the, like all the houses that we built 
timber framed in Maine were from timbers cut in Montana. <laughs> I was wondering if that might have been the way it was. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's all. We'll cut back. Like, there was a time where you were doing, you were a timber cruiser in Montana, weren't you? I had a friend that did that and would help. Yeah, I would go out with yeah. him. and Yeah. Yeah, I... And I, I wonder uh, if any of the trees you were working on later in Maine were trees from that you ever I, ever marked. I might have wrapped the tape around them. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry it would be say. interesting to yeah. know. <laughs> sorry, old friend. Yeah. <laughs> you thought yeah. I was just giving you a hug. <laughs> it was a kiss of yeah. death. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of where I was, and then. You know, we I, we had some friends with draft horses there. I'd watch a farrier come. Those ho- those shoes were going in a forge, and I was watching it for the first time thinking, yeah, maybe, you know, and he was talking about, you know, like it, it's just weird to think that, like that anybody, you know, and I say this because I did it, but that anybody would nail a shoe on a horse without, I didn't even, I couldn't even tell you what bone was in the foot. You yeah. know what I mean? I, was, oh, yeah. I just knew the nails like I knew if the horse jerked and it bled, I should leave that nail out. You know, yeah. I, and that happened a lot on the toenails because it was like a box of ots went on every foot. Some of those horses had size two feet. Yeah. So diamond Start toe and the heel, out. open it up, slide it back, you're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that's the way it gets done from some. Yeah, from that's the reason people, a cowboy shoe and you see him using the back. <laughs> of the nails like yeah, the back yeah. three those <laughs> yeah. don't those are the safe ones <laughs> yeah. those are... and you know and those that the climate it's it's amazing how it affects feet so uh like you know in that part of montana was a little greener than the east side but still like after june you didn't knife you couldn't knife feet yeah they're rock they're rock hard and that's the only reason those i think those horses tolerated it they were yeah oh yeah Yes, yeah, they, were, right. they had they had rocks for feet already. It didn't really matter too much. No, I couldn't do it here. Yeah, yeah, that, fall apart. Yeah, yeah, they'd be crippled. Well, I mean, we shot them with sole pressure. They just just rasped right straight across the sole yeah. and nailed the whole works on. Oh, yeah, that, I mean oh, that is like when I first started, like just team rope and shoeing was we just rasped flat everything. Yeah. Frog, soul, everything went flat. You just nailed onto that bad dog. Yeah, in, way, in your rope horses, it's really important to short shoe them too. You oh. know, like you, you need the heels like <laughs> so, they got to be at least an inch forward so oh, they yeah. don't step them off when you turn your steer. God, uh, yeah, God you forbid dump, you take them down, any. When you dump yeah. his shoulder on the ground. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, so, so where did you like ever get some formal training? So I attempted to go to a farrier school. So this is like at this is after after now the internet's around, so this would have been uh two thousand somewhere yeah. two thousand one. Yeah, so the internet's sl- still slow dial up deal, but you could get on it at the library and so mm-hmm. I looked for shoe horseshoeing schools. And not knowing anything about schools or having anybody to talk to for guidance. So I found a, a school with the nicest website, which was the East Coast Farrier School. It was in north of Raleigh, North Carolina. It's not there anymore. I don't know what happened to the owner. But 
it was like they had a really nice website and it it said hot cold corrective therapeutic you're gonna <laughs> yeah. learn all this stuff and i think it was a six-week course and um i was i was only there two weeks and wow. all we did was drive around in an old ambulance and shoe bronx in the pasture and <laughs> <clears throat> i was already i already knew how to do that you know, yeah so so i kept complaining you know when are we gonna forge or you know are we gonna talk about anatomy and so he finally got i think he was tired of me and he said you know you don't really need to be here and so he refunded my money for no kidding the rest of it and i left with two about two weeks of training or might have been more now i don't remember but so then i i met another retired farrier in Maine, he was an incredible artist blacksmith too. His name's Ed Groves. He's he's in his nineties now, uh, but Ed was one of the charter members of the Michigan Horseshoers Association before he moved back to Maine to retire. And he was telling me about the Michigan Horseshoers Association. He was the first one that really like was telling me about this world that I didn't know existed yet. Mm-hmm. And so he knew Dick Becker, and it was Ed that said, "If you're moving back, you." If you go back to Michigan, or if you're going to move back there, you should you get a hold of Ag Groves or get a hold of Dick Becker. And so I called Dick and asked if I could apprentice with him, and he took me on. And oh. So that was really like Dick really was the bulk of any kind of formal training I had, and and then anatomy, the rest of that stuff was studying, and then the studying, you know, you're you're pushed to do that really just getting ready for certification. So, and I was gonna say at that time when you started riding with Dick, was he competing pretty hot and heavy and everything? Yeah, yeah. The year that I started with him was the first first year he was on the team, I believe. Uh, and then he made the team a team again the the next following. year. Yeah, following. How year. long? How long did you get to work with him? I worked with him like. I think I worked with him about three, four days a week for about two years and then kind of slowly started. He was starting to feed me horses, you know, his overflow. And and then I just kind of phased out until like that last, you know, year or so I might work with him once a month or a couple times a month, something like that. But, you know, you know, one of my biggest regrets was that I ever stopped. That I would, that I even wanted to pursue my own business, because yeah. he paid me really well, and mm-hmm. all I had to do was put my my box in his truck, and then Show at up. the end of the day, I took my box out, and that was my and I, my phone didn't ring. I didn't have I didn't have to order any supplies. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about a lost shoe. It, you know, it was like if I could go back and do it all over, I'd still be working for him. Like, no kidding. Yeah. You enjoyed it that much? He was awesome to work for. It was like every day was fun. Never felt like work. Uh, but you were but, still but learning. It, was he like, I was going to say, was he like slipping in a lot of lessons in there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, that that was the cool thing about working with Dick is uh, like he had a vested interest in you getting better. You yeah, know, cool. it, and so now like – you know, since I got to the point eventually where, uh, you know, I took on my own apprentices, 
And I realized that there's motivation in doing that as a mentor because the more they know, the, the, the I mean, they're just handier, right? They make your job easier. But mm-hmm. they but that teaching process always slows you down. And that was the nice thing about Dick was he never felt like he was put out or, well, okay, I got to take an extra five minutes to show you this. Like he he enjoyed that part of of the job. Like he... He felt he took a lot of pride in watching all of us get better. It, yeah, you know, and and he's humble about that. He, I don't think he brags. About, I know he's proud of a, a lot of the guys that he's helped through the years. You know, but uh, but like he's <clears throat> he doesn't always. He's not sitting back going, "That's because of me." You know what I mean? Like yeah. he gives us our due credit too. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. No, that's huge. Did you? Did you get your certified while you were working for him in those two years? Yeah. I got certified, I think, the first year I was with him. And then the, and I, it wasn't even a year. Because as soon as I finished the certified, I started. It was only about a month later I started the journeyman. So I, oh, okay. I got that whole thing done probably in less than, less than two years. Yeah. so Probably helped a lot having Dick there to help guide you through that process and help you out through it. Oh yeah. I mean, at the time he was an examiner too. So, so, uh, every foot I trimmed, like to him, it was a score, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so, and, and so I, he would, he would score my trim. He'd force me to score it. And, you know, then the same with fit, nail up, finish to the point where when I went to take that, my certification, I, I knew the score sheet by heart and, you know, and so I was never spinning my wheels like I, and I, and I could score myself pretty accurately too. So, so if I looked down and said, I got a, you know, like, I'm not really happy with flat on this foot. I got a six, but I've already two minutes into trimming this foot. So I'm going to take my six. And, and I'm going to move on, right? So, because that's the thing with that test is time. The biggest thing is time management and then choosing your points, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, you can take a four. If you know you got a 10 coming later in the score sheet, take your four and, and nail up and get done, right? And take your licks. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. You know, and I, I didn't compete. I did compete enough to apply that a little bit in my competing too. So mm-hmm. I learned, I would learn what I could take some lumps on and what I wanted to save time for rasping or different things like that. But I never competed at the level that Dick did or a lot of, a lot of you other guys do, but, but so in it, in those two processes go together. I think it's great what, what Craig has done in that with the competing industry and, uh, and it it'd be it'd be really kind of neat to see statistics on uh you know the people that have competed heavily on local on the local level or even through the WCB and and how how much faster how much easier it is for them to go through the certification process yeah, be, I, think, it, I think it'd be very it. interesting to see it'd be some cool data yeah <clears throat> it, it would be yeah i think that would be I never thought about that of seeing if there was a correlation of it, but it's like, I'm sure there is. Yeah. I'm sure, 
I, I and it also be to see interesting to see if there was a increase in people taking the certification after the WCB has been like kicking off. Because it seems like there's a lot of people, like especially novice people, that are in the WCB, but they haven't yet taken their certification yet. Like yeah. that, I wonder or if vice they, it drives them. Yeah, it drives them to go do it. You know, one yeah. or the other. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, the cool thing about Craig is like, like even through this whole endeavor, and I mean, he's he's built an enterprise, and and it's one he can be really proud of. But he's he's still a big supporter of the AFA and the certification. Mm-hmm. And, and like just the whole continuing ed deal you know that's uh no it's it, that is true yeah he is still for i mean american horseshoers like he just wants us as a whole to be yeah. be doing better yeah be getting further so how so how long were you shoeing horses on your own before you got the gig to iowa and like what what kind of change was that uh so i had it was probably about 12 years I shot on my own. 10, in Michigan. 10, 12 years. Yeah, it's like it's kind of hard to put an exact number on it because I can't really remember like exactly when I quit working for Dick. You know, like I said, it was yeah. kind of this phasing thing, but it's 10 to 12 years somewhere in there. And uh, I, I never thought, I never even would have considered a job at a university. Never. It's just, it wasn't wasn't something that I would have thought of and said, no, I don't want to do that. It's just I never even, it never even occurred to me to work at one. Right. Well, no, because you know? you're, you're in a super unique position as far as horseshoers go that you pretty much work a nine to five and you have a set amount of money you're going to make that year. You know, it's like compared yeah. to most of us are like, I don't even know what I'm going to do next week. Like, or you don't know when you're going to be done for the day. Yeah. So that, I mean, that part of it's nice, right? I, and I don't take that for granted. I miss, I'll tell you, I'll be like, honestly, I miss shoeing sound horses that, yeah. you know, and I get so few of those that I have, I've got a handful of really nice horses that come in just for routine work, but, uh, and when they come in, it's like a vacation, you know, but, but I do like, I love the catastrophic stuff. You know, I just did a, I just put a horse in a patent bar shoe yesterday, you know, and it was like in 12, 15 years of shoe. And like before Iowa state, I never did a patent bar, you know, a hospital plate, you know, it's like, so that sort of stuff, that's what I've really grown to love. Uh, and unfortunately, what also comes with that at a, at a referral center like ours or, a, you know, a big ho- equine hospital is it's just neglect cases. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that that's it's just amazing that. Uh, so, they, like, they, these people have horses they've owned for years. And the thing is, so is finally he's been so lame for the fast four months. They wait four months before they even bring him in. That it's that's what the other weird thing is. They tell you, well, he's been how how long has he not been able to walk at all? Uh, it started about four weeks ago. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah, we're gonna <laughs> we, see if he dies first before yeah. we got him. <laughs> so we had God to damn. roll him into the trailer. <laughs> yes. So oh so they God. they come in and. They, 
the horse just has feet that long, right? Uh-huh. And, and so instead of making an appointment with the farrier, they take the horse in for a lameness exam. You know, <laughs> so, you know, the, by the end of the day, a lameness exam, if they shoot x-rays, block the feet, oh, you got, you could easily have four or $500 into that. That that would have bought you two years worth of trims, yeah. year and a half yeah. worth of trims, yeah. So, oh, well, all right. So let's get how how did it come about to you? They're like you weren't even living in this state when you got the offer, huh? No, uh, so they had con- because they have a part of what I do there is I teach a two week clinical rotation for fourth year vet students. And they they had the idea of starting that before I got there. They were trying to get it going, and then the farrier that was before there before me got injured, and so that was when they were looking for somebody else. So they wanted somebody with some teaching experience. And uh, briefly, uh, the AFA was teamed up. This was years ago. We were teamed up with the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and they would send a vet and a farrier out to a university and we would do a, a one day vet farrier short course. And I had taught a couple of those, a few of those. And so I somehow I was recommended or they said he's got some teaching experience, which really wasn't <clears throat> like I didn't have any. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so that so when they when I first talked to him, I really didn't want the job. And and then I thought about it later. So I, my back was giving me problems. I'd had a, a hip surgery. Two, I had shoulder surgery. There was other things starting Shit. to fall apart. And so they were. Te- so I called and talked to him more about it. And then we, my wife and I drove down and check it out. And I I was up front with them. I told them I'm like I'm on the downhill side of this whole deal. If you're looking for an animal that's going to shoe 15 head a day. Uh, I'm not I'm your not guy. guy. Yeah, I don't want it. I, you know, and they they said, yeah, you know, like a lot of days it'd be one or two horses, and then the big part of it is you're using those horses to teach the vet students that are with you for those the the two week ro- rotation. Um, so that that part of it really turned out to be my most favorite part of the job. I I love working with the vet students. And uh, why why so? I, I like so it's like uh it's like you're you're rocking their world right so they you guys would not believe what they don't know coming out of vet school when as it <laughs> pertains to podiatry and shoeing horses because by the time you get a hold of them they've been learning for a while correct yeah they so i don't get them to the way vet school works is <clears throat> Your first three years are all your lecture, labs, class, mostly classroom work. When you get to your fourth year, you go, at Iowa State anyway, you go from May to May. You don't get any winter, winter break or summer break. And in that whole year is spent in either externships or two-week clinical rotations at, in the hospitals. So there's a small animal, large animal hospital. And then depending on how those students want to track, <clears throat> they'll they'll choose elective rotations that are going to support what you know, so so the students I have they're going to do equine they're going to practice equine or mixed large okay. animal so, something like that but you know so they have at Iowa State they get w- about one hour of 
distal equine distal limb anatomy their first year of vet school. You know, yeah, it's you know, and I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm more simple. We've almost been talking an hour right now. Yeah, like it's just like yeah, nothing. So, you know, it, it, it helped me a lot because. Our, the frustration that you know all of us experience with veterinarians at some point or the other, and I started realizing that it's not really their fault, and, and it's almost like it's like I was thirty years ago where I didn't know what I didn't know, right? Like I, I, I didn't even know there was another world out there. They're in the same, they're in the same boat. So, you know, and. There's very few universities with vet schools that have farriers that actually interact in some way with the vet students. And I think those universities are going to, I already know we're having a huge impact. You know, like I, I'll get reports back from farriers in Oklahoma or different places. Hey, I worked with this uh, Iowa State grad, and the first thing they told me was, I'm not going to tell you how to shoe this horse. I learned from Doug Russo. You know, it's like, yeah, so, so they, so I, one thing I can teach them in two weeks is how much they don't know and how much they have to trust us and develop a professional working relationship. And, and it's like, and then, I mean, I try to, I try, we do review anatomy and, and different shoeing philosophies for lameness or different things like that. But, uh, the one thing I just like I try to really beat into them is that you gotta you like if you can't work with the ferry like the local farriers you're destined for doom, okay? You know, and I I think all of us have that story about a vet in our area that can't get a farrier to work for him anymore because oh, yeah. we've been run over by that bus two or three times and it, so their prognosis for those vets is poor. Right? They how do yeah. they treat lameness without a farrier? They can't do it, right? So they they just have a bunch of pissed off clients all the time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, so your horse is still lame. Do you you <laughs> have them every like you have them ten days total? Then like yeah. five days for two yeah, weeks. I don't. So technically, I could get called in, and if I did, my students would come in with me. If we had, and that seldom happens where I where a horse can't wait for me to get there the next day if it oh, comes like in on emergency or Sunday type thing. Yeah. Once in a while it happens, but yeah. So the students are with me Monday through Friday. The way the day works is they go to rounds in the hospital. So they look at all the hospital cases that are in and they discuss those. Then they come back to the shop and we spend another hour round. They call rounding, which is we're talking about cases in the hospital uh, or we're talking about anatomy or or other different pathologies that we chew for or different we basically have a discussion for another hour and then our first horses are coming in around nine nine thirty it so the only thing I can really get them to do practically is pull shoes right At this I, point. like yeah what I mean I'd just be making them really dangerous if I tried to teach them any more than that in a two yeah. two week time frame. But, and then how many students are kind of like with you each time? Or does uh, it, it vary? It varies. Yeah, so I, I have on occasion as many as five. On average, I have three. Oh, okay. So, right. so what's the, what the, like the really fun thing is like day one, I give them an old shoe and, and show them how to make a hoof pick. 
It, okay. It, so that, like, the other big eye-opener for them is, like, number one, when when they're discussing anatomy with me, they they think, like, I'm some sort of, like, anatomy god. You know, like, they've <laughs> yeah. never talked to anybody that understands anatomy. And I'm not brag. I'm not that good. You know, like, as far as anatomy goes, I feel like a poser. You know, like, I... I got my associates and I passed some higher exams and everybody's like, Oh, you got to call Doug. And then usually when people call me, they don't know that I'm looking at a book while I'm talking to them. Cause (laughs) everything that I like, I I wish I was that guy that could retain it, but I, I don't, I retain what I teach. And so that's another advantage of being in that job is if I want to get better at, let's say musculature through the hind end or something like that, I add it to my discussion. And then if after I teach it for three or four weeks, I start to recall it or memorize it better. But So it's like repetition then at that point. Yeah. It's almost the same as like making a horseshoe. Yeah. So like anything you want to get really good at, teach it. Yeah. Start teaching it. But so anyway, I get them in the forge. And man, they're like their hands are blistered like after five minutes and they keep dropping the steel and they're getting the slag burning them and so they realize like in that first five minutes of forging and trying to pull a shoe that we make our job look pretty easy you know it's like so they don't come up to you anymore and say can you slip that shoe off because they they're now they know it's not like yeah it looks like we slip it off but ain't that easy it's a technique No, that's great. And, and they're they're watching you probably make shoes for these horses. Yeah. And so they're getting how hard it is to like. You, you don't just throw a, a heart bar on that thing. Yeah. No. Yeah, and 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 I like that. So that and I, it's 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 interesting how different a lot of the the the. Uh, the industry is like in my end of the industry with the university farriers or the farriers that work for big referral hospitals. I like to forge. So I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, like it's funny that people will call and want, they'll want me to do a clinic on gluing shoes. Like you don't want, you don't want to watch me glue a shoe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Call Travis Burns. Yeah. yeah, Call Travis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I look like a monkey humping a football. There's glue. I got glue on my face. It's on the floor. <laughs> the horse steps out of it. You watch Travis, and it's like you just watched a ballet. I mean, I, like, I feel emotional when, when he's done. <laughs> but, uh, crying. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's, a, it's very it's moving. But so... But that's a that's another really cool thing about our industry is that like that and I try to teach the students that there's a whole bunch of different ways you can skin a cat. Yeah, yeah. It, and and so if you try to force me to glue a shoe for your laminated horse, you're not going to get the best outcome from me. But it but if you let me cast a heart bar or or do something that I'm used to doing, you're going to the prognosis just got better. Yeah. So I try to tell my students that, like, you got to see me do this stuff for two weeks. You know what my preferred methods are. Now, don't go out there and start pigeonholing farriers, telling them, well, I want you to do this just because Doug Russo did. You know, that, oh, yeah. Just because so, they you can't, know, they're not able to do. No, yeah. they don't do. 
But they probably, and, well, so and the other thing is, they know that they have a relationship with that horse that I don't have. Oh, you know, I see it all the time, right? Yeah, like, that's a disadvantage of being at the university. But, like, when you're when you're out in the field like you guys are, you know they got woven wire fences in the back 80 pasture. Horses at the bottom of the pecking order. They feed them on a round pail. It's really muddy up by the water tank. All those things affect the package you put on the horse. You're trying to work around all these, like, external environmental influences. And... And so, yeah, to then to have somebody sweep in and say, I want an egg bar on them, well, you know you're going to be back there every other day to nail the egg bar on, right? Oh, so it's like... I see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. No, and that's... I, I think, like, that's the difference between some really good vets is the really good vets read the situation really quickly of, like, this is where this farrier is at in his life, and I'm not going to, like, feed him something or yeah. sit, recommend it to his client to make him look bad. Like, they're going to recommend yeah. something they know that he can do, and hopefully it can get pulled off you know like not pulled off but like he can pull the job off and make it make it happen yeah yeah so you know and the other part of that's owner compliance you know you know like and i so you got that awfully laminatic horse you know he'd he'd love to have a shoe on but Mm -hmm. if he isn't going to get reset till like eight months later he's better off like he's got a fighting chance being barefoot Yep. Yeah, you know, so those are the clients that you end up talking them out of the shoe because you know the horse is going to be better off in the long run without it. Without it, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, those, those, like, it's amazing all these, like, all these little things you don't, you never consider when you're getting going, you know, and and then, and then when when you get into the different different areas where we all live, the different kinds of horses we work on. It's amazing that we still always want to fight on Facebook, right? Like, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, you know, there's like one picture from on an angle from four feet away and there's like five, <laughs> 500 different opinions and then... It's just egos, man. <laughs> yeah. People's egos get in the way. Oh, it's yeah. like none of us talking like we don't socialize enough we're all fucking riding around our pickup like not talking to anybody and then all of a sudden yeah. somebody posts like finally i'm gonna talk i'm gonna tell everybody how much i know <laughs> i've been yeah. waiting all day to tell somebody how yeah. much i know here yeah. i come yeah oh it's great well you know, i any... think that was good of like i i got to go out to iowa last year i think that was last year and yeah. you guys do that little contest and the Vet students are involved there. Yeah. Oh. And so, like, you, you guys did a class where they're presented a dead foot and a injury, and they have to make, like, a backstory on it and then help the farrier come up with a plan, and then they get, as a team, going, the farrier makes the shoe and everything. Yeah. Like, and then, what was it? The vet has to nail it and clinch? The vets, the vets have to punch and pritchel the shoe and then nail up and clinch. Yeah. So and uh, some the backstories those vet students came up with. Yeah. Was amazing. Yeah. So it's like that whole experiment, it's I mean it's basically a giant wet lab, but we were the first to the first I know of to actually incorporate it into a competition setting. And the right. vet students loved they loved it. So what I was trying to do when we when we brainstormed this was what what farriers are traditionally really bad at is <clears throat> like 
is is defending their work right so Mm -hmm. you get you questioned on your shoe and you're already pissed off and you put your hands on your hip and tell them to hire somebody else if they don't like it uh right and and then also giving a case history so we want professional recognitions from veterinarians but but we don't often supply them with the same information we'd like them to give us right like we want a phone call well, if we know a horse is going to the vet and we call that vet up and say, hey, let me tell you what's been going on with this horse for the last six months. I, I guarantee if you do that, you're going to blow their mind. So you're going to give them all kinds of useful information going into that situation that they didn't have before. Uh, and you're going to be the first one that they call back after they figure out what the problem was. Hmm. So No, but because it, it does almost <clears throat> seem like when you tell them that stuff afterwards, it seems like you're defensive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is a really good point, but like I, I'm guilty as hell. I <coughs> I never think to call them and be so, like, "Oh, hey, just letting you know." Well, in our in our owners don't think to do it either. I I think we all need to start a policy with our owners. And I I did with mine. Uh but like even before I was at Iowa State, I t- I told them like, "Your your horse's feet, that's my department. If he's lame, I, you got to call me if he's lame. And it doesn't mean I'm going to come out and fix the lameness, but I need to know he's lame. And, yeah. and then and then that allows you then, so if, if your clients do that, they call you up and say, I just made a vet appointment with such and such. He's coming out on Thursday or whatever. Then you say, I need that vet's number. And you call and tell him, hey, this horse has been stumbling for the last two years. Did well in pads, you know. Uh, uh, maybe a solar margin view would be helpful. I suspect he's got some pedal osteitis going on. Like already you started this back and forth communication. You help the vet kind of narrow in his lameness exam because you've given him some clues as to what's been happening and how this has been progressing. And then like that whole teamwork thing starts there as opposed to us just getting pissed because they left a shoeing prescription. Yeah, well, no, because it does almost seem like a lot of times, like I've had clients do this, like they all of a sudden like slip to you that they called the vet. Like they were trying to hide it yeah. from you. They're <clears> like, <throat> well, you know, I did take him to the vet. Like, it's like, I didn't even know anything was wrong with the guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> I thought he was going yeah. good. <laughs> like, no, that is, that is a good, a good idea to do. But it is like, we are, why do you think we're so horrible at talking to vets? I don't know. I I think this goes it kind of goes back to to what we were talking about earlier with like with a lot of what Walt envisioned as a future for our industry and <clears throat> I think that a part of it's part of it's the nature of the of the people who are attracted to our trade like f- independent free thinkers mechanic like very mechanically minded uh and so <clears throat> probably the hardest thing for us to train ourselves to do are those things we just talked about. So it's getting out of our comfort zone, not yeah. our, our, our world for that moment isn't going to revolve around ourselves and the dog sitting in the pickup next to us. We got to actually work on a team to yep. achieve something. So, yeah. Then that that transitions. I'm trying to work on my transitions a little bit, so this this is a little bit smoother. That you are pretty involved with the AFA 
right now still. Like you, it's still been yeah. a bit, pretty big part of, through your whole career, hasn't it? Yeah. So what's your role in AFA currently? Uh, so I am chair of the research committee. Um, I assist Travis with uh, therapeutic endorsement. So I'd be an examiner on the therapeutic endorsement test. Uh, I'm an examiner for the AFA, a certification instructor. Um, and then recently with the launch of the American Farriers Association Foundation, uh, that was like that was probably the biggest trick ever was they asked me to be on the board strictly as an advisory position. And then after our first meeting, I was president. What is the foundation? <laughs> Thank you, guys. The foundation is, uh, I think it's like, it's the next best chapter for the AFA. So it's basically the foundation is an endowment fund. Okay. And we're, we're, we're years late in getting this going, but, but it's off to a good start. The, the point of it was that, so there's different types of, of, fi of nonprofit uh, tax-designated entities, right? So the AFA, by law, has to make the majority of its money through, through the, um, uh, the, member, uh, the membership uh, fees, Right. So that's mm -hmm. that's and so there's restrictions like if we had a wealthy widow of a farrier pass away and, <clears throat> and leave her entire state that's worth two million, the AFA technically couldn't accept that donation. Oh. So that was the big driver behind starting the foundation was to have a tax entity that could accept those donations, <clears throat> but then not only would accept them. But then ma invest and manage the money, and okay. and try to and basically fundraise. So you guys, you guys have all been called by endowment funds at some point, PBS or, you know, who knows what. But um, it's the first time ever hearing what an endowment fund yeah. is. Yeah. So that's kind of <laughs> well, kind it's, of a dummy. So. Well, I mean that's it's not the same as thing as being well endowed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> different it's probably good that you clarified that right <laughs> <laughs> so he was feeling really inadequate just about that. <laughs> uh, so anyway we are we've already raised like over one hundred sixty thousand. the afa pitched in a big chunk of that um, oh, nice. but so then what the idea is is that as that money grows you we basically live off the interest and then we're able to fund all kinds of cool stuff, more like more hoof related research, education. Uh, we can we, we look at. Uh, uh, oh, so I, was, I just lost my train of thought with the education end of it. Uh, anyhow, uh, this I mean, basically, the sky's the limit. Uh, right now, one of our biggest goals, the AFA is just lost its office uh, after renting oh. in the horse park for 30 years. They, they're giving us the boot. So we're looking at trying to raise funds so that the AFA can buy some land, have a brick and mortar facility. Uh, hmm. Same thing. And then like the sky's the limit there. I mean, that could be, that could be a hundred acre place with a big pole, like a huge indoor arena where we host 
competitions and events and continuing ed certifications. I mean, uh, I think like, so our job really on the foundation is to think big and then raise the money to do it. But <clears throat> we exist for the AFA. I mean, that like if the AFA went away tomorrow, I mean, so we would too. Foundation. Yeah. yeah. So it, it is a separate deal pretty much so from the yeah. AFA. Yeah, it's the it's called the American Farriers Association Foundation. Uh, AFAF. AFAF. Yeah. How many people are on the board for that? There's uh, myself as president, Travis Burns as vice president, uh, Tim Bryan as treasurer, Tom Dubois as secretary, uh, and then Eric Gilland as a board member, and then. Martha Jones, who's executive director of the AFA, has mm -hmm. been very active in helping us getting this going. So she'd be she's on all the meetings with us. And then <clears throat> Hank Chisholm is the AFA president, would be like a non-voting board member on the with the foundation. So he's he's always on those meetings too. And, I see. Yeah. But so, so like even though it. it is a separate entity from the AFA, the AFA can accept the donations from it? Through, well, yeah, be basically we f we would fund it. So like, so my, the research fund that I managed up until we created the foundation, that the AFA managed that fund. Uh, once the foundation was created, I moved the fund over to the management of the foundation but the fund is still controlled by the AFA and whoever's in charge of that uh, uh, department. That Yeah. So, so you know, like if if I want to pull the money at any point, that, that money's still part of the research fund, right? Yeah. It's just actively invested. And then if you go on the, that, we have a website. If you go on there to make a donation, you can choose the different areas you'd like to donate to. So oh, whether cool. it's philanthropy, research, different things like that, and then that money will be earmarked for those ventures. Uh, I wish we could do that with our taxes that we pay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dictate where they go. Yeah. Well, so yeah. like our friend Brian just did a research project for it. Yeah. Stralo. Yeah, yeah, Brian Straylow. Is, I, I don't know. I just figured everybody knew what I was talking about. But, yeah. uh, is this so your like, invisible how does friend? Yeah, yeah. He's, I keep him in the closet. Yeah. Uh, how how does a person go about, like, if they were interested in doing a research project for this, how would they go about doing it, and what are the, the nitty-gritties of it? So the research committee, we set it up so that you would – what we're trying to do is get farriers actively involved in research. And so, yeah, Brian applied for a grant through the research committee. Uh, and then we helped fund that, his project. Uh, but so what we want to do is we, so you guys are, are you familiar with the, like a peer reviewed process in research or. <clears throat> a little uh, bit, a little uh, bit, but not just run it down. as like, we probably don't know. Yeah, it's so the, the lot so to make to really simplify it like just to write something uh doesn't necessarily validate it so 
the way the, the peer review research process works is you write your research process, paper, but there's, there's standards that have to be, have been met through the research process. And then your paper then goes to a group of peers who read it and evaluate it. And what they want to determine is that if they did your research project or, uh, if, if they did the same research that you did based on your explanation, they would get the exact same results. So it's basically, you've just written a road, you've just written directions basically, or a roadmap. And so they, they then determine whether or not it's really worthy to be published. Is this, and are they doing that just off of like their thoughts or like, so like in Brian's case brian had uh like uh, i'm gonna generalize it but like if it made a difference during x-rays if the horse is on one block or two blocks yeah. so stuff like that so like when he sent in the peer review did a guy have to go and do that same research or did he just no. have to like well i think <clears throat> that would work the cool thing about it is that a lot of times your peer reviewed your your peers that are reviewing these they don't even have to be horseshoers they could be oh. like a like a molecular scientist somewhere on a whole different level or a whole different th deal. But what they're looking at is the directions that you wrote for your process and can it be duplicated? So are there holes in it? And and actually what we're finding is that okay. a lot of times having peers that review it that are not in the industry are better because they already have preconceived ideas of what outcomes should be. And and That's so they can it can that. sometimes be an unfair process. Um, anyway, the goal with that com the committee was to actually get farriers involved in the scientific community, which would give us a lot of professional recognition. And, and yeah. so historically, most of the stuff that we read that that is called research fairly loosely a lot of times was conducted by veterinarians, and they had no input from farriers. So they're talking about treating lameness with this shoe and how effective it is. And they saw this, you know, 80% of the horses responded positively, blah, blah, blah. But then you read their paper and they never even described what kind of trim they laid down or what kind of fit the shoe had, right? So yep. if I tried to do what they did, I wouldn't get the same results because I'd be starting off, number one, with a different trim, different shoe fit. Diff, you know so had no control no controls right so that, that makes a ton of sense so it's like so a part of your job is is your job finding these peers these like peer review people no once so that like you send them off to get published so depending on whichever company is going to publish your paper that you send it to they have their own uh peer review panel panelists or whatever that that they would have read it. You know, it's not uncommon for them to send it back and they want revisions or explanations or really, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's sometimes a brutal and painful process to go through. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds pretty drawn out, especially in today's day and age where we just want to be like, I'm done here. Here it is. Yeah. Give me grace for it. Where yeah. you have to like keep getting your boot in your mouth a couple more times before it's going to be, be any good for you. So yeah. how how many of these projects get accepted every year, and like how many have you guys done so far? I believe we're at six right now, uh, and there's several of them that are in the writing process 
right now. Uh, none of them. Travis would be the closest to being published on okay. uh, one of the one of the projects that we helped him with. Uh, so it's a you know like I'm passionate about it. I think <clears throat> I think it's a big thing. I think it's going to move us forward. And it and what the farriers have to understand is you don't you don't have to be an academic to do it. Like if you have an idea like Brian did, you know, it's in it. That was a very simple. It was a very simple experiment, but it was well needed. Right. Like, yeah, like that's a a big eye opening thing. Loaded versus unloaded. What's it do to the limb? And so that you might think is not going to be a huge contribution to science. But if it's established and proven that will now be referenced in all kinds of scientific papers going down the road. So it's laid a platform out for future scientists. Okay, well, I know if I load this limb, this is this are the results, so I don't have to repeat that in my research. So that simple little project that Brian did could have a huge impact on the industry over the next, you know, 40, 50 years. So what's Super the cool, plan Brian. with what's the plan with these writings with these uh projects after they're done how are we going to get these out to people so we we have all of our grant uh, recipients speak at conventions so they talk about their projects as they're ongoing where they're at the scientific process writing all that sort of things once they're published they'll be available to all the afa membership to read those papers uh <clears throat> they go into like if you go on the internet, you can go onto PubMed or Google Scholar, and you can p- type in keywords, and that'll bring up scientific research that's been done with like so. If you put laminitis, equine laminitis, so once those papers are published, our authors on those papers would show up in those places, like on PubMed and Google Scholar. Is that different so, than? Versus just going to regular Google and typing in laminitis and you get all this random shit, basically, which is what most horse owners, horse yeah. owners are going to type in. Yeah. And be like, oh, my God. But they see all these different random things that may not necessarily be accurate. No. Yeah. Google so are better. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's only going to pull up papers that have been peer reviewed or is you know, Google or, Scholar free. Well, you can get the what they call the abstract, which is like a shortened version of it. If you want the paper, you'd have to pay for it then. But that's Uh-oh. a that is going forward. That's something that we want to have as a member benefit benefit for the AFA, so our members have access to those papers for free. Oh, I see. I I see. I see, I see that. I'll be. I'll just play the devil's advocate here a little bit, though. But it's like if we keep charging people for these, then they won't get out to the horse owner. And they won't get out to as many vets, I would think. Like I would think, like these could they won't ever leave our circle. The um, the vets will will be the main audience. So the horse owners, like even if you search, like Gavin was saying, if you did a search for equine laminitis just on Google, it might still bring up those scientific papers. But the best thing to do is to write a recap on it that's published in, you know. Uh, American Farriers Journal or something like that, you know, and then in uh, that that recap then is just talking about the the research that you did. And those things come out in the No Foot, No Horse. When we get ours published, we talk about them in the No Foot, No Horse as well. But 
But the biggest impact that this is going to have on the industry is that that's where veterinarians go when they want information. They go to PubMed or Google Scholar. And then that that therein lies the problem is that most of the research that they're reading then is either done by a company that's selling a product or a veterinarian that's already got some built-in bias or doesn't have the skill to to talk about the trim or other yeah. things like that. So yeah. we need to be a part of it. I see. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm, I'm worried about is that it won't get out. You know, it's like knife makers just <clears throat> going to knife shows to sell their knives. That's probably a pretty stupid idea. You might want to go to a cooking show, you, yeah. might, you know, or a trade show where I think like we, we do that bad as horseshoers. We just keep on spitting it back at each other instead of like, well, we probably yeah. should like you going out to the practitioner deal and meeting with these vets that's probably where we should be doing these these speaks not at like it's probably good to do it at a convention as well but well i it's almost to the point where we have so much information at our fingertips that we're like like with the foundation this has been around over a year it, like we've had several articles in no foot no horse where we've been mentioned in the e-blast over and over again yeah but <clears throat> like farriers we all have our own little areas of interest, right? And we kind of hover there. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of people that just don't know about stuff yet. I mean. Yeah. So I'm certainly guilty of that myself. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was like, as we're getting the news out for the foundation, it's like everybody that I tell about it, they're like, you should write something, no foot, no horse. It's like, well, we did twice. <laughs> Go find one of your back issues. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, oh, it's- Second one down next to your toilet. It's it's in there. <laughs> so. yeah, I'm glad that we can kind of uh, help get the word out there for you then. Yeah. For the foundation itself. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it is, it is somewhere where, like, I could say that pretty, like, for sure that AFA is way behind it. And, like, you're not saying just foundation. AFA as a whole is not on social media. Yeah. It's it's sucking in that department, man. You guys aren't like trying to not trying to call you out too much, but call a spade a spade. It's not doing very good compared to other er- things in life. Like most associations are, they got an Instagram that's super active. They got a social media thing going. It's like yeah, it's hard, but it, that's where everybody gets their information right now. It's the uh, the quickest yeah, and easiest freaking way to see it, and it just shows up in your Rolodex, and you got to look at the damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I'll admit I'm not good at it. I've got a, I've got a large animal, like a Iowa state, large animal hospital veterinarian Facebook page. I probably haven't posted on there in two, two years, you know, like I, I just don't, I wasn't really part of that generation that thinks to do it. You know, it's like, I, it's like after the horse is gone, I, oh shoot, I should have got a picture of that, you know, post, put something up, but Oh, it's it's a whole other job. It's yeah, it yep. is. And you get like you get gun shy on that too after a while because, like I said, you you try to post something that you think might be useful or educational, <laughs> and you get torn a new butthole by the they end of the day. They run you down, <laughs> don't they? Yeah, the fuckers, like, the fuckers are always there. <laughs> so. Fuck, they're always there. But you know what? Yeah. You gotta you gotta throw it in their face, and not even try to throw it in their face. Is like. You gotta kick the hornet's nest every once in a while, or just post what you're doing, or it's like or everybody's quiet. Yeah. And everybody's quiet. Well, nothing's getting talked about. Nothing's getting stirred. It's like, I, I 
I, I made a post not that long. It's just like a post of talking about being a judge and how it sucks and how you want to try to make a perfect shoe. Well, that post got like a bunch of wrath on it about like guys talking like, well, it's hard as the poster to know, to feel like they're not talking about you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it, most people in that, that post were very good. They were just talking about in general, about competitions yeah. in general. So I'm not taking offense to that. And it's like, well, it's hard sometimes as a poster to be like, no, they're just talking about everything, not me. Not everything's about you. Like it's it's kind of hard hard to remember that though. It's, social media yeah. is a fucked up place. Well, Man. but they're like when you post a picture of a shoe, there still is always probably half that half the people on there that do say you suck. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. what were what were you thinking? Or yeah, and, oh, yeah. and it's like I said. It, like I had, I just got off most of those, like vet to vet to farrier, farrier to farrier. It was like this is the biggest waste of my time that I don't get back. I could do something. Yeah. Per, I could do something productive in this amount of time. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, they don't think about the the fact that we live in different places. We work on different horses. They don't they know the situation the horse is in. All, and all we're these. All we're all evolving at different stages in our career as well, you know, yeah. within our abilities, you know, yeah. people don't necessarily take that into consideration as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah, I kind of went on a side, a little side turn there. Sorry <laughs> about that. So do you, do you plan on finishing your career off then pretty much at Iowa? I don't think we'll, I'll leave here. Yeah. It's uh, I got one more kid left in high school, three more years for him. Uh, never thought I'd be that I would live in Iowa. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> but you know, but you, all... do, you got you got a cool little spot there, though. Yeah, you aren't like you aren't very far from the university, but man, your spot feels like it's in a different world. Yeah, we're rem it's pretty remote. We don't ha have any neighbors. You have trees. Oh, that's perfect trees. Yeah, we're yeah. surrounded. <laughs> you, got, you got trees. Like, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't think there would be a lot of trees in Iowa. <laughs> No, there's not. There's, there's not in there's a lot not, of places. <laughs> no, we got a cool spot. But, you know, I like the people here. The politics are good. I get, you know, the folks are nice. And, you know, like I always thought my goal would have been to go back to Montana where I used to live. But the Flathead Valley is like a, it's a big city now. Oh, yeah. I, don't even, I don't even want to go. I don't even know the people there anymore. They're not the kind of people that used to be there. Yeah. It's a vacation spot nowadays. Yeah. Know? So, yeah, so I, like, the more I see that change, the better that looks here. You know, just stay here and take my trip to the mountains. Are the winters, the winters pretty harsh there as well, right? Yeah. Kinda yeah, like all our North snow Dakota comes area. down sideways. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's something else I've always kind of wondered, like, in with winters like that what is it like shoeing in the winter there you know i guess you're probably not the best ass of not going out shoeing day to day but is it still change much like for you at the yeah at the we're, university i'm just slow you know like i no i mean like does the yeah. number of horses change like coming into the university like when it gets real cold out oh yeah yeah like we we don't get the case, near the caseload oh, i really? think I think pretty much like here in Iowa, I think most people forget they own a horse 
until the first 60 degree day and then want to go ride it yeah so i i think a lot of the ferries here struggle through the winter Mm -hmm. you know it's try to find another job or something like that not a lot you know i think a lot of them stay busy enough trimming but there's not as many horses like in michigan the area worked there was a lot of high-end dressage horses and those horses got they got winter packages oh yeah you know and they and those were expensive getting a winter package and and the horse was still done every six weeks all winter so it's pretty good yeah but we don't have a lot of those clients around here what is the average stay for like a horse that comes into the? You said they live there basically. Like, are some of them there for like a month, or some of them for a year, a week? Yeah, so I mean, we're like a regular human hospital. We have a isolation ward. We have a IC intensive care unit. Uh, we've wow. got uh, Thereo doctors, so they take care of all the equine breeding. Medicine doctors take care of all your infectious diseases, Potomac horse fever, all that kind of stuff. Surgery team, that's everything else, colic surgery, orthopedic surgery, all that that sort of stuff. So we have had horses come in with, you know, fractured legs, different things like that that might be at the hospital for a month. Uh, I don't think, I'd say on average, most of those that come in for surgery might be there two, three days before they go home. But, okay i see yeah you have any uh like horror stories like can you think of one off the top of your head that was just like oh my god i can't believe i'm having to do this oh uh, yeah so a lot of it's just the amount of pus pus and blood you know <laughs> it's like yeah you don't you never think about that like i got pus on my face you know it's like, uh but yeah, so so many abscesses and like rotten coffin bones, bone sequestrums, that sort of stuff, and and I still like ten years into this, I never think to put rubber gloves on. Like there, there's latex gloves everywhere in the hospital, and I never put them on till my hands smell like an abscess. You know what now it's just so, trapped on your hands. Yeah. <laughs> So. That's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just not the guy that wears gloves ever. I'm always kind of like, ah, I'll just be in there for a second. It'll be, yeah. Now you're like, a second too long. Second yeah. too long completely. Yeah. So what? What are your plans with AFA? Do you plan on staying where you're at with it, or? I'm not going anywhere. I mean, I, I'd like to turn the reins over on the research thing eventually. Uh, you know, I, I always say I don't want any more jobs and I, I always end up taking more jobs, but, but I mean, really what the AFA has done for me has allowed me to help. Right. So like the more that I got involved and volunteered, the better I got in all different kinds of ways, you know, it's a, Those folks that are, they drive me nuts. Those there's always like a some farrier every year at the general membership meeting at the convention who wants to take the mic and say, "What has the AFA done for me? You know, what am I getting for my dues?" Yeah. It's like, well, nothing. Cause you haven't done it. It's not a country club. You know, it's a yeah. membership to an association. It it allows you to participate. You know, so yeah. and the people that participate are the ones that get ahead. 
But yeah, we're here for continuing education. Yeah. You know? Not so do you plan beer. on like it seems like you like you're a type of guy that you kind of get things going where you want them to go and then you'll start going on something new a little bit too you know like yeah. so you get the foundation going where you're going is there things in the main AFA that you would like to head into to try to make those times better to like put your time into the main yeah I mean so I just came on as an examiner I had been a a tester for a long time um, so. I think that's that the certification instructor deal and the examiner are two, two more newer uh, things that I've been involved with. Uh, I don't know what the next thing will be. Like I'm still kind of learning the ropes there, and and the exam, like the examiner position, I'll tell you is uh, uh, it's 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 a load of responsibility. I I it's so easy. Like like I. It wasn't that long ago that I saw some some more negative posts about certification, uh, and I don't think people realize like the blood, sweat, and tears that that a lot of people have put into that process, and and still like you don't really realize it till you're you're a part of that committee and you see the like those that they've met for the last three days and that they, they've got hours every day into discussing this stuff and trying to make the whole process better. Uh, and, and it's, it's always evolving, it's changing. And, but, but I can honestly say that in the 20 years that I've been a part of the AFA, it's always, it's always gotten better. Right. So like mm -hmm. there's, there's always, there's a hiccup. And we get past that hiccup and we, you know, we're at the top of the next mountain. But, but yeah, I think that, uh, <clears throat> that's been the biggest learning experience for me. Becoming a tester was learning to appreciate the work that went into the process, you know, before I got there. It's like whole new level of respect for, oh you yeah, know, for, you know, there's that's guys like, like Pat Burton, Dusty Franklin, there's guys that are still examiners that were examiners when I started the process over 20 years ago, you know, that are still ha like heavily invested dedication. in dedication. Yeah. A lot of work. Yeah. No, and I think like it's easy for people to go once and be like, oh, they're all against me. They're all yeah. wanting to make it be the worst and stuff like that. It's like, no, if you like, like generally even just a contest getting judged, they're trying to give you the best score they can. They're just. Yeah. They're trying to make it all work. If something slips by, it's like generally everybody's trying their best. They're not yeah. trying to screw anybody over at these deals. Yeah, think that, that might be the biggest hurtful thing that I've heard said is, you know, like referring to testers as bat, you know, badge protectors or or different things like that. And I mean, I I haven't been around as long as other people. And there's there's bad eggs in everything, right? You yeah. know, like I'm sure at some point a tester made a mistake or an examiner did but like overall the level of sincerity is amazing and it's like you show up at those deals and everybody's rooting for you you know like yeah. and and if you think you had a bad day failing your horse and having to go home that examiner did too like yeah. he he had a bad day because you failed you know yeah. it's like like they that was like the Don't best day for us is someone. when like everybody got what they wanted, right? And it it mm -hmm. that never happens, but 
No, that goes. I think that goes for judging people too. Like if you're a judge somewhere and people don't do good. If you have a whole class of people, where everybody was frustrated. You feel bad as the judge. Yeah. You're like, man, I didn't do a good job here. I didn't pick yeah. a good shoe. I didn't like explain myself good enough. You know, people were you guys confused. froze. Did we lose Doug? Doug, Doug, Dougie, Doug, Doug. <laughs> I think we lost him. Oh, Dougie boy. Um, back. back yeah. in the saddle. Yes, I had to take the computer apart real quick. <laughs> Rebuild it. Yeah. It's like it's a carburetor. <laughs> Those little screws got to be hard with just your fingers. Yeah. You got to do them all left-handed. Yeah. So got to use your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> well, Doug, we've kind of uh, watched your mm-hmm. window go from from sunshine outside to dark. Yeah. Yeah. Watch the sunset. Yeah, feel feel bad. What time is it your place right now? I think you're three hours ahead of us, aren't you? It's t- it's quarter after ten. Man, yeah. getting there. It, it, it's like three hours past my bedtime. Well, sorry for <laughs> keep, sorry for keeping you so late, Doug. Uh, yeah. Something that we do like to ask everybody on the show is, uh, what would be four people that you can like hold in high regard? We call it a Mount Rushmore. Four people that you kind of hold in high regard or respect and can. can can contribute a lot of your success to or somebody you just look up to for uh so uh <laughs> that's easy yeah, so, I you're, so i can do or i could do nine but uh so no hands down so like dick becker was uh, obviously huge like i i owe it all to him Going mm-hmm. all the way back to Ed Groves out there in Maine, he got me in touch with Dick, turned me on to the whole thing. Uh, it's so hard after that because it's like, uh, I feel like there's hundreds. Um, and, and so after Dick, well, so I guess before Dick, it would have to be my mom and dad because they, like, they spanked me. And yeah. that's the best thing they ever did. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess, you know, you never really think about that. You, like, everybody always asks, who is the biggest contributors in your career? It's like, my mom and dad taught me how to work. Yeah. yeah right like, there with you. <laughs> they taught me how to be dependable and and how to work hard. So, and 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 how to be likable. So I think people like me, you know what I mean? So if you're not likable, you're not going to get opportunities. Well, I've never met somebody that said, Oh, I hate Doug Russo. Everyone's always like, man, I love that guy. Not me. Not yet. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure somewhere, somebody, I, I, I'm sure I made somebody mad. So yeah, my mom, dad, Dick, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, like a lot of those guys were at like where I really cut my teeth was in Michigan. And so uh, that was Jeff Powers. He worked along with me with Dick and and then like in Jennifer Horn. Uh, Are you others, related? He, no, like I was, it's a, it's a, 
she calls me little brother because I broke a lot of her tools. So it's like, yeah, I earned that nickname. But uh, and then I guess like, like truthfully, the people that really helped me were the people I taught. So, you know, like Jacob Eddings and Joel Armstrong and uh, boy, I'm going to start forgetting a lot of Scott. the guys that Scott Bouchard. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> so those guys, like watching them progress and then <clears throat> at, at like, especially in the case of Scott, like I now I'm learning from Scott. You know what I mean? Like he's passed me up on the forging end of things. And um, and so I, I guess like the other big, like like the those, well, like the biggest contributors, you'd say you don't ever think of your apprentices, but I guess in my case, it'd be a lot of my apprentices. That's so really I, cool. I feel like I didn't do a good job answering that No, that was question. great. Yeah. That was good. Well, I think I, you hit you, nine. You, you led you led me into a different little hole. I got I got one more question I want to ask you, and you talked about your parents spanked you, but you have raised three good children of your own. What is some advice out there for people raising children that you have? Of how how do you raise good kids? I well, I mean that's such a big thing, but like I think part of it with me was that that I. Like my, I married a good woman, right? And so my wife is like phenomenal with the kids. So I, I'd have to give her a lot of that credit. But, but I, I think I heard it said once that if you don't like your kids, nobody else will either. It, it's kind of a true deal, right? Like if you raised a spoiled brat, that kid ain't gonna have any friends. And it's so then, put it. opportunity. Those people that nobody likes, nobody hires, nobody wants to be around them, you know. And so, so leading by example, uh, like giving a hundred percent, being responsible, being dependable, uh, and 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 being a generous person. I think if you can make your kids all of those things, they're like they're gonna have a good life, you know. And, if they have to put me in a nursing home, it'll probably be a really nice one. It's <laughs> one thing yeah. to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's awesome, Doug. I appreciate yeah. it very much. Spitting some advice at us and sharing your time. We really right. appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks, thank guys. Thank you very much, Doug. Thank you, you Doug. You we'll bet. See you have soon a good sometime night. then. All right. See you.